the accidental engineer welcome all max of the accidental engineer here today i have the pleasure of being joined by josh evans welcome josh uh thank you max i'm, I'm really excited to be here is exciting to have you on because you have a pretty incredible career story and i thought it would be really interesting for audience to hear about the kind of accidental background by which you found your way to software uh, for audience members that don't know about your background you spent a great deal of years at Netflix. Uh, not quite sure if it was from the inception of Netflix, but very early on. And Pretty close, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it would be interesting to hear about how you found yourself in Santa Cruz neighborhood, which is where the company started, and how you found your, your way to software. Sure, sure. Um, well, I uh, grew up in New York, um, New York and New Jersey, um, and decided when you know I was sort of starting to think about school, I had sort of was sort of tired of living in the city. I was actually living right in the village and wanted to be somewhere just beautiful. Like so, I was talking to my my mom about like, hey, maybe Hawaii, maybe California, and I happened to have an, an aunt and uncle who lived in Santa Cruz. Uh, both of them worked at UCSC. Uh, my uncle was a professor, uh, and my aunt was an administrator there. Um, and I applied there and, and got into UCSC and had plans for pursuing, uh, of all things, a music uh, degree, um, which I didn't have a lot of experience with, uh, with music. I loved music and I played guitar, but sort of that was my dream. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go study music at UCSC. Um, it was kind of funny because uh, I had friends who were doing computer science, um, getting into engineering, and I had absolutely no interest at all in, in computer science. My, my dad uh, on the East Coast had spent his career as a mainframe programmer and just complained about working for banks and insurance companies and just couldn't stand it. Like, but it was his career, so, I, so I, I sort of grew up with that in the back of my mind. And so when my friends were like, I'm going to go to a computer science degree. I'm like, have fun with that. That's, that's just sort of not for me. Um, so I sort of stumbled around um, in my, my UCSC career, um, took some time off even, um, sort of got almost got like a minor in politics, dropped out for a little bit, went back, and then rediscovered a passion I had for art uh, and specifically printmaking. Um, so silk screening and lithography and all of that. Um, Quite interestingly, the the technology was more interesting. Sort of the craft side of it was was almost more interesting to me than than the art side. I was not an especially talented artist, but I loved the craft. I loved putting things together and assembling them and repeatable processes and you know things like that. Um, so I, I was going to school and um, was doing it part time because I dropped out, came went back, and I'm like, okay, I got to get myself together here. Um, and I was actually waiting tables and cleaning houses and um, working pretty hard and really didn't like waiting tables, just wasn't for me at all. Um, and I happened through a personal connection to meet this guy who is the sales director and customer service director at a company called Borland. Uh, they were Borland International at the time in Scotts Valley. Um, and just quite by accident, I, I'd met this person and he had sort of an architecture background and we both like similar music. We sort of hit it off and he's like, Hey, I've got this opening at Borland for the nighttime security guard and 800 line operator. So I would literally get there at five o'clock and just watch people go in and out and it wasn't much of a job. And then I'd get an occasional order, had to write it down on paper, got handed off to people doing data entry. I mean, I was sort of very, very early days as far as that goes. Um, 
And then that, that sort of was the beginning of just sort of being in that environment. Uh, and then when I finished uh, school, I had, I had been at Borland for about a year and a half, two years, and I'd worked my way into customer service and was starting to play with some of the tools that, that Borland uh, had, like Sidekick, which is a, a DOS-based, but, but sort of graphical interface, all character-based stuff, so very old school. But it was one of the first sort of personal organizers, so calendaring and to-do lists and that kind of stuff. And uh, so I bought myself an IBM XT and had that at home and sort of playing with it. And um, as soon as I graduated, I, I had a choice to go be a starving artist um, or go to go to grad school and then become a starving artist after that. Um, at the time, there weren't a lot of teaching jobs for artists and all of that. Um, or basically go across the hall and apply for a job in tech support. Um, and I'd gotten just sort of interested enough to sort of try that out. And I was lucky enough that um, somebody gave me an, an entry-level opportunity in tech support. Uh, to support what was called utilities. So it was like uh, Sprint, which was a programmable word processor, um, SuperKey, which is a macro tool, a whole bunch of other things like that, like Sidekick. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of my tech career. It was just literally a moment of, well, I guess I don't want to do this. I want to have some kind of career. I need to make some money. I was thinking about starting a family at the time. And I was like, well, this looks good to me. Um, and then I just sort of didn't look back after that. I met some really cool people. They were smart. It was a really stimulating environment. Um, and then within a year, I started getting the programming bug. Um, and that's that's a whole other story into itself. I don't know if you want me to jump right into that, or I can sort of keep going, but I'll, I'll pause here in case you uh, you want to redirect this in any way. We, we will get to in a moment. I'm curious if you don't mind painting a picture for our audience of what the kind of software economy looked like. You mentioned how your dad was working on mainframes and that was a little discouraging <laughs> in your mm -hmm. thoughts about entertaining it for yourself as a career. But around the time that, uh, that you joined Borland, was there a big job market for people working on oh. software businesses or was it small? Oh, or sure. So this was, let's see, this would have been mid eighties. It was the rise of the personal computer um there were lots of jobs to be had i mean i quite honestly anybody that was talented was able to get work at that time and i'd say you know even going into the well actually no this would have been tech support i moved into i would have been 1990 i'm sorry so this was already well underway i had joined Moreland earlier in sort of late 80s um so things were really pretty much underway in terms of personal computers and they were already by you know 90 91 starting to move into windows that was the big thing windows 3.0 which was a primitive piece of crap 16-bit operating system at the time uh, i think it was 16-bit um anyway extremely fragile and all of that but it was still so cool but that was that was sort of the uh, and from my perspective right around sort of the rise of personal computing where it started to become real pre-internet but a lot but people were starting to have that and they were doing like mci mail and bulletin boards and those kinds of things were fairly common and for people who don't get the geography of the San Francisco Bay Area and where Santa Cruz is relative to things, mm -hmm. it's it's a good hour plus drive from maybe downtown San Francisco. So in terms of where you might have been looking at working, 
were you pretty local to Santa Cruz or did you know of, you know, Apple existing on the other side of the oh, Santa Cruz no, Mountains? No, I was, I was completely oblivious of the Valley. I was, my view of the world was very much, you know, a UCSC student who wasn't really interested in tech, who really just sort of stumbled into this. So the fact that Borland was in Scotts Valley and I was going to school at UCSC was, was the, and I had this opportunity in front of me that was not waiting tables and not, you know, not cleaning houses. I was just happy to be making like 12 bucks an hour doing a job that I didn't hate. Um, and so that initial foot in the door was a complete by accident kind of thing. Um, and then because I was already there, opportunities started to unfold at Borland. I didn't really think about leaving until, you know, a good six, seven years later when the company was at their fifth layoff and I just sort of gotten you know, tired of being there. Um, but I never really thought about leaving because driving over 17 was a really intimidating thing. You know, over the years, of course, I became more and more aware of, you know, tech companies over the hill and there were opportunities over there. Um, but Borland did a great job of talking up how dangerous it was to drive over 17. And <laughs> you really don't, you know, that's going to be sacrifice your work-life balance, even though they didn't really have much of a work-life balance there. They had death march, you know, software, you know, runs and all of that. Um, yeah, but so basically I stayed there until I really just, it was really kind of unpleasant to still be there. And that was my motivation to start driving over Highway 17 to at least to Los Gatos or Campbell, which was, you know, about only about a 30, 35 minute drive. So what was the transition from working in tech support to actually authoring code and writing software? So it actually happened in tech support. Um, so I started in utility support, but I quickly became interested in something called Paradox for DOS. And Paradox for DOS was a self-contained development tool that was, it was a LAN-based, you know, this is pre-internet. So this is running on like, you know, Novell Networks, AT&T, Starlan, you know, these are early local area networks. Um, and Paradox was a tool where you could both interact with it, you know, as an end user, but you could build applications in it as well. And you could do character drawing for dialog boxes. You could have like a Pascal-like programming language. Everything, all, all variables were global, sort of like, you know, BB script kind of stuff. Um, and I started working on a tool because we were doing support on CompuServe and it was tedious. Um, CompuServe was dial-up, you could download the messages, but then they just gave you raw text uh, and uh, you couldn't collaborate with other people. We had multiple people doing support, you know, tech support on these bulletin boards. And I, I decided to, I wanted to go write a tool to make that easier. So I, I wrote uh, basically something that would shell out to DOS and download, you know, all the text from all the messages and then import it. I wrote my first parsing routine. I learned about recursion. I mean, got, that's why I got really excited. So getting some of these fundamental concepts um, it was just a lot of fun and to build a tool within tech support that was then used by my peers was just like, I got hooked at that point. People were using the stuff I was writing. I can still remember when I was like, I can type stuff into this screen here and it makes the computer do something. I remember that very primitive, like I can make the computer do something now. <laughs> and for somebody that never thought of getting into tech, it was just really intoxicating kind of thing to be writing software and solving problems and, and then be able to share it with my peers and have them get value from it. And we were started collaborating using the tool. And at that point I was just like completely hooked. I loved writing software. Contrasting this to maybe your dad's view of the software business, there, there's something so magical about the personal, personal computer 
Can you can you maybe illustrate for our audience how different of a experience your dad might have had in working in software on mainframes to the really exciting oh, stuff yeah. that you were working on? Yeah, I, I think the things that are different are both the kinds of applications you're writing and the people you're working for. Um, the kinds of applications you're writing for a bank or insurance company, not not that exciting. Um, although these days, you know, it is. But at the time, it was all nightly batch processes, and you know, you had to get time on the mainframe, and programming was challenging. I mean, my dad started with punch cards and um, worked his way up to slightly more sophisticated stuff like you know, writing assembly code and COBOL. Um, and he also was working for banks and insurance companies, which he did not like. Now, the one job I remember him loving was when he worked for the news election service and he got excited about that because I think he loved politics and being involved in collecting votes for national elections. He talked about that a lot. And that was the one shining star, I think, in his career. Um, and that really, when I, I thought it reflected on that afterwards in terms of my own career, and it's, it really speaks to that sense of like purpose. Um, and with the personal computer, there are so many things that you can do that you can relate to yourself. Like you're writing applications that you can use or that you can relate to. And it's not about supporting a bank uh, or an insurance company and sort of to their ends. Although lots of people do that work today and it's great work. And I wanna, <laughs> that still needs to happen, obviously. Um, but I also feel like, like the tools have gotten so much better. The IDEs are better, the responsiveness when you're developing in a, on a personal computer. And that has just gotten better and better over the years. And the best contrast I can come up with was is like thinking about DOS-based tools. And then um, when I was at Borland, I moved into a job, a couple of jobs after tech support doing tools development. Um, and Borland had multiple bug tracking systems written in really lame tools like Lotus Notes. And, you know, every team wanted to write their own. And so I was given the charge to write one. Um, and I got to do it in Delphi, um, which not a lot of people probably know about these days, but it was the first what they call RAD tool, Rapid Application Development Tool. And it was developed by Anders Heilsberg, who went on to develop C Sharp and .NET and all of that at Microsoft afterwards. But I had the, the great pleasure of like developing in Delphi while Delphi was being developed, like 1.0, um, and got to sit in on demos when Anders was, was like showing, hey, here's the property inspector. You drop this thing in here, and you, you can create a database connection with no code and you know all of this kind of stuff. And it was just mind-blowing stuff. And so I, that, that, I've actually, to this day, I'm not sure that anybody that other than the work that Andrews has done, that there's any IDE that comes close to that. Eclipse still doesn't come close to the kind of usability that I think Delphi had. Um, but that, but I think the tools you use and the, the uh, immediacy of the development that you can do on a personal computer and that you can do it at home, that you can make it, it can be a passion project, um, that you can work on at home. And maybe sometimes that's a bad thing. People work too much, but, um, but the, the accessibility of it, um, the ability to have a side project that you're excited about and go work on it. I don't think those opportunities were really there for people working on mainframes. It was hard to get time. It was a shared resource, you know, all of those kinds of things. So I think there's a lot of different angles to it, but the personal computer, I think, opened up tech to a much, much broader audience. And quite honestly, it was just much more cool uh, than working on mainframes, at least from my perspective. So the, the idea of, using tools that are exciting to use it totally jives with my experience. Uh, one thing that I think would be really helpful for folks in our audience who might 
be earlier in their careers is to hear about your take on what are good employers. Like you, you alluded to the mm. dissatisfaction your dad had with working in insurance and banking. What do you think was different about the folks that you worked for earlier in your career that made you excited to be in the industry in comparison? Uh, you know, I, I think um, I was very lucky. I had a couple of just great managers and maybe they weren't great managers in the sense that they had a lot of experience with management, um, but they were good people and they... I, ha I was already very self-motivated and the, things, the thing that demotivates me and I think demotivates a lot of engineers is when you're micromanaged. Um, so I was given a lot of rope to sort of pursue side projects and explore uh, and investigate and that worked really well and I was recognized and I was promoted because of that. Um, so I was given the freedom to sort of show what I could do and um, had a lot of room to do that and then just a lot of support along the way i've got one manager actually it was funny the guy i replaced keith bigelow was the nighttime security guard and 800 line operator before me who was doing his math degree at the time and then full circle about two years later i ended up working for him he came back to borland i ended up working for him in tech support and he was just an incredible manager very supportive and we became friends and he went on to have an amazing career as well and um just some really good people. So I think that was my, the beginning of me, you know, in Netflix terms, freedom and responsibility. Um, that was my exposure to it without any sort of explicit culture, uh, you know, defining that. But I had people that essentially allowed me to do that. And then when I ran into people that didn't do it, I just left. <laughs> um, I had, when I was in tech support, I wanted to go start working on Windows because that was the new cool thing. And the guy who was the director was like, no, you can't do that. I need you to stay and continue to work on Paradox for DOS. And I'm like, well, sorry, screw you. Um, I'm going to go apply for a job in QA for Paradox for Windows because I want to go work on Windows. Um, and so I found like just, you know, if I ran into an obstacle, I ended up just going someplace else. But a lot of the time I had managed, most of the time I had managers that were very supportive and wanted to just let me, you know, they obviously had some work they needed done. Uh, and as long as I was working in that area, I was given a lot of freedom to decide how, how I was going to tackle those problems. So graduating out from Borland, you mentioned that they declined as a business and it wasn't quite a linear path for you from Borland to joining Netflix in its early days. How did you find your way to Netflix where you spent 17 years? Is that right? 17 years. Yeah, actually, it started at Borland. Um, so when I was at Borland working on Paradox for Windows, a guy I'd worked with in tech support who was the QA manager and was the liaison for Paradox for DOS became my manager, a guy named Rob Gordon, who also was an accidental engineer. He was a musician, never went to college, or if he started, I think he dropped out. Really, really sharp guy and had just great instincts from a QA perspective. Um, and he and I became friendly and I was sort of his senior guy. I was his right-hand person uh, within that, that role. And then he left Borland to go to a startup uh, and called Nativa at the time, which was started by Rob Shostak, Randy Nielsen, Elliot O'Mia, all guys who had worked on Paradox for DOS and Paradox for Windows decided to do their own startup. And then these layoffs were happening and I volunteered for a package right around the time that they were trying to recruit me into the same company. So I basically followed Rob, uh, although he, he and I started basically the same week. Um, but I went there really because he was there. There were other people that I knew. Um, and then oddly enough, you know, Rob was there for a couple of years and he decided to leave to go to this startup called Netflix. 
Um, and he told me about it at the time. And he's like, hey, I want you to step up and take over. He was QA manager at the time. He said, I want you to come to take over my role. I'm going to this company called Netflix. And he told me about the business model. And I have to tell you, my first reaction was, what an incredibly stupid idea. I, I, I thought it was just ridiculous. Like, who's going to wait a week for DVDs to get shipped to their house? It was an a la carte model early on. So it was basically like you go and place an order and then you wait as long as the U.S. Postal Service takes to get it to your house. And they only had one shipping center on the West Coast. And I was like, I don't get it, but okay, that sounds sort of interesting. Uh, it was an internet company, but I didn't know much about it. I didn't really think much about it until about a year later um, when oddly enough, I got recruited to go back to Borland, actually went back got there and realized I had made the biggest mistake of my career. Um, I got there and people were like, you got out. Why did you go back? Why did you come back here? <laughs> so Rob calls me up and he's like, hey, Josh, you didn't tell me that you were, you know, available or, and I didn't even, to be honest, I was just sort of depressed. Like the startup wasn't going well and I just wasn't thinking straight and I made the mistake of going back. Um, and I felt incredibly guilty for about 30 seconds talking to Rob about leaving. And then I was like, you know what? Let's talk. Um, <laughs> he's first like, what's it going to take for you to come? And I'm like, well, I just took this job. I should stay. I'm going to burn a bridge here. They're going to be pissed at me. And he's like, and then I was like, you know what? I, this, I made a mistake. And I saw like the week, the next week I went in, I interviewed at Netflix, uh, met some super smart people. A guy named Stan Lanning, who's still there, super senior, senior engineer. Um, I don't remember feeling especially prepared for the interview. I remember having a discussion about load balancers, which I'd never worked with before, but I was able to reason through like how they worked. And they were like, okay, this was 1999. You have to realize um, it was during the tech bubble. So a lot of people would get job offers like the same day they went into interview. It's not like it is even today where you, you go through rounds of interviews and it might take a while. It was like, you have a clue, you have a pulse, come on board <laughs> um, because you can be sure that that person already had two or three other offers like within a day or two, like that's how hot the market was at the time. Um, so I was lucky, you know, in a lot of ways, I don't think I was, you know, there had been a lot of competition and it was tight. I didn't have a lot, I didn't have any internet experience, and, but I got lucky. And Rob, of course, um, knew me and wanted me to work with him. I almost got shot down by Patty McCord, who also was from Borland because they'd already hired a few people from Borland. And she's like, I don't think you want another Borland here, Borland person here. And I'm and Rob fought for me enough to kind of make that happen. So that's how I just managed to squeak my way in um, and, and join Netflix. Uh, about a month later, in fact, this is the reason I joined, they were switching to the subscription model. So that was the reason I decided to join um, when I had been very hesitant about it a year before because the, the subscription model made sense. You know, Neil Hunt, who was the chief product officer for quite some time, just, I remember sitting with him at a picnic bench and him just saying, okay, I know this isn't going well, but here's this idea that we're about to launch. And I'm like, okay, that, 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 that sounds like that could work. And I didn't really feel like I had a lot to lose at the time. Fair enough. I, I think a lot of our audience aren't familiar with the backstory of Netflix. Like some people in our audience may have been born <laughs> after Netflix started, perhaps. I don't know how young the audience is, but... Uh, for people who are almost well, 23 years ago so yeah very possible yeah. people who aren't familiar netflix like you're describing started with an a la carte model and we're were and still are shipping physical dvds 
What's the, uh, what was kind of the trajectory like you're describing from a la carte to subscription, from subscription to streaming? Was, ah, was, yeah. was video, streaming video on demand online? Um, did it kick off with a bang? Did it kick off with a whimper? What was kind of the timeline to... Uh, ah, okay, let me sort of put the timeline together. So I, I'll, I'll piece it together. So in 99, I started, it was that was in September was the launch of the subscription DVD business. Um, I did engineering for about four years in e-commerce and then moved into management, did that for about six years. But at those last two years, we were starting to dabble in, actually this started with download, believe it or not. Um, we actually had physical prototype boxes with hard drives in them that would connect to the internet. Internet speeds were relatively slow in, let's see, when would that have been? 2008, somewhere around there, 2007, 2008. Um, and the belief was that that was the way we had to go. If you wanted high quality video or talking about multi-hour downloads, maybe overnight, it would sit on a drive. I mean, that was the whole idea behind that. Um, and um, then YouTube launched. I remember the exact year, it was probably around that same time, and suddenly everybody went, oh, shit, we're wasting our time with download, and the internet's gonna get better, and Moore's Law is gonna kick in, and this is, this is the way to go. And so there was a very quick pivot um, to streaming, and that drove the acquisition, actually, of Roku, um, which was a internet radio company at the time, um, and the Roku, the Roku folks were brought in to build the first Netflix device. Um, I'm trying to remember like when I switched and that was probably again, probably around 2008. Yeah, it must've been in 2009 was when I switched over to run streaming and we were already on multiple platforms at that point. Um, the funny thing was that, um, I was running e-commerce at the time when the Roku box was supposed to launch and I almost never missed a deadline, but we were about to miss the deadline for having all the e-commerce infrastructure ready to sell these boxes when Netflix realized that becoming a hardware manufacturer was a strategically bad idea. So they realized that the partnerships that they wanted to develop and the platforms they wanted to be on would not be available to them if they were competing with Microsoft and Apple and various other entities that they wanted. They, we, we wanted to get our service onto their box. And so just out of sheer luck, like just a couple of weeks before I had to go face the music and say, we're not going to make the deadline, they decided to spin Roku back out and they took the Netflix box they developed with them. And that was the first Netflix ready device supported now by a third party company that was obviously very close with Netflix. But um, that was sort of the beginning of that. Now, of course, in parallel, Netflix was on Windows Media Player to get the start on the browser. Windows was actually the biggest platform at the time, believe it or not. You know, obviously not not today. Um, but that was sort of all the stuff that was sort of brewing around that time. It, I remember one of the big issues with streaming video is the copyright issues, the fear of mm -hmm. piracy. So when you're describing these partnerships to getting Netflix onto Microsoft and or Windows and, and Mac mm -hmm. OS, was that did that come down to working with the platforms to ensure digital rights management or DRM or oh yeah no, we were using DRM early on it was it was WM DRM in the beginning because we were running on Windows Media Player so those went hand in hand uh, and the studios were those those contracts got more and more stringent over the years because you know especially as you start moving towards like 4k you do, you really don't want somebody ripping your 4k content 
and then making that available. Um, so the security was pretty intense. We were a DRM shop on day one. We had very stringent security as well. So device security as well, unique identifiers on hardware, sometimes that were burned into firmware um, to uniquely identify devices so people couldn't share, use a single device or device ID essentially to sort of share a single account. Um, and a lot of that sort of ratcheted up over the years, but like, you know, even things like geo-blocking became an issue over the year, over several years to make sure that we were regionally blocking the access to content. You know, Netflix didn't have a lot of um, skin in the game to do that. If they had customers all over the world that wanted to watch the content from Netflix's perspective, that was good, but the contracts were pretty stringent and required that like, especially Disney was like, you can't be showing our content in the UK if you don't have a license for the UK. Even if it's your customers and even if they're moving around between the US, et cetera, they were, they were really pretty stringent about that. And it made sense, you know, you understand, you know, they're trying to protect their, their crown jewels. Um, and so, you know, that, that, as I said, that bar just sort of kept ratcheting up over the years. So it was even early on, it was very security intensive protocols for, you know, identifying devices, protecting the content and all of that. Were, were you at all surprised as the business shifted from physical DVD mailing to streaming video on demand over the internet, uh, just in the composition of the employees at Netflix from being maybe operations focused, like physical operations to software engineering? I mean, today, I don't know what percentage of Netflix employees are software engineers. I, I'm guessing a fair amount are in the studio line of production, but uh, was that yes, certainly the, the, there's there's certainly a lot of that, although if you squint, you know, Netflix was always it wasn't perceived that that way. And certainly um, Netflix had a, did a lot to build up its reputation as a tech company. But Netflix was always a technology company. And so those of us working in engineering didn't think of ourselves as being operationally focused. I mean, my team was working on e-commerce. We were integrating with with systems in the in the the background that we're doing logistics, very sophisticated software that was determining, especially when we had multiple shipping centers and we had to dynamically move the inventory around from where the demand was. There was some very, very sophisticated systems on the back end to predict where inventory needed to be placed to be able to, to precisely manage this entire system to get one day delivery going. Um, and so there were a lot of really interesting software challenges. Postal automation development, my team didn't work on that. This was all back end, um, but a lot of automation and software development. And so if you really squint, you know, Netflix wasn't called DVD by mail. Netflix was called Netflix. And all the streaming really was was a change in the delivery mechanism. Now, clearly, the new delivery mechanism involved a lot more engineering. Um, uh, because of actually the delivery piece. Um, and then we had to work with CDNs in ways we never had before. Um, we had to have a much more scalable architecture, dealing with stuff much more in real time. You know, the DVD business, if your site goes down, people were still getting DVDs shipped, they were generally happy. But if your service goes down, you're dead in the water and your customers are extremely unhappy when you're streaming. So we had to have that. So it changed radically. And I'd say the engineering got much more intense um, and moving to the cloud, you know, and moving to microservices, we did that all at the same time. So major technical shift. Now today, I think the business is because now Netflix is a movie studio. Um, that's shifted again to a lot of content ops and a lot of engineering, I think, around making, you know, creating a modern movie studio. 
Uh, and all the same technical challenges are there around keeping the service up from a streaming perspective. But I think a lot of the hard problems there have been solved. Netflix knows how to scale. They know how to keep their services up and running. They know how to do it efficiently. Um, a lot of those hurdles have been overcome. Um, so I think the shift in the business um, is actually quite representative of the recent change in leadership as well with Ted Sarandos now co-leading is representative of the shift in the balance, I think, in terms of Netflix's focus where um, it clearly is becoming more and more of a content company and the technology is there really just to support that um, and it's taking a little bit more of the back seat than I think it did in the past. You mentioned the move to the cloud and adopting cloud hosting rather than physical self-hosting on-premise at Netflix. What, how crazy of a bet did that seem at the time? And <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, people were freaking out, I have to be honest with you. There were, there were a fair number of people that were, um, some people thought it was an incredibly bad idea. You, you do run into that a bit more with folks in IT. Um, because it, you know, there's a, it's a little bit threatening moving away from your data center that everybody's very familiar with, and these people all have jobs in, in that realm. Um, so we, I, I definitely heard more noise from folks on the IT side that this was a bad idea. Um, but there were a lot of people who said the cloud's not ready, um, and it's not a mature environment. And Reed, being the visionary that he is, saw the potential and said, yeah, this is going to be hard. And um, I'm going to push you to do it anyway. And you need to basically stop complaining and go get the job done. Um, and then there was a shift that happened within about a year or so when people suddenly realized how incredibly cool it was and how innovative it was to move away. And we had all the problems in our data center that most companies have in the early stages. We had a giant monolithic architecture that wasn't scaling. Um, and we also weren't very good at running data centers, quite honestly. So. Um, it made a lot of sense, um, but it did take a big leap of faith. And I think it was largely Neil Hunt and, and Reed Hastings just putting their heads together going, this is where the industry is going and this is going to scale and this is going to allow us to focus on the stuff that really matters, which is the innovation within our business, within our domain, and not becoming really good at building data centers or racking and stacking and you know all the other stuff that goes along with that. And it forced us to rewrite our architecture in a more scalable way based on commodity hardware, which so there's all of these compelling reasons when you look back, that are like, well, of course, it should have happened this way. But nobody else was doing it. And nobody was running at scale in AWS at that time. And we did run into a lot of problems that we had to overcome. We had to build our own discovery mechanism for services to find each other because Amazon didn't really have anything like that. We used simple DB for databases and simple DB did not scale. Um, we were getting throttled with relatively small amounts of data and low amounts of traffic. So we had to build these incredibly complex, not incredibly complex, but complex sharding mechanisms just to make it work because the technology really wasn't up to snuff. So there were, were a lot of challenges and we ran into a lot of limitations within Amazon's infrastructure, but we had their ear. And over the years, they, you know, Netflix became the poster child for scale in AWS we got more and more concessions, more and more support from them over the years. Um, and so that really helped sort of clear the way. But it was several years of um, pain. And also us learning how to run systems at microservices at scale. Nobody knew how to do that at the time and our shit was falling over all the time. Those first few years when we started getting traffic, my God, it was like sometimes there were weeks with like three outages a week and it was only a handful of people who knew how to troubleshoot things. 
the real experts that could go divine the system. We didn't have good dashboards. We didn't have great insight. Um, we didn't know how to build scalable services. We didn't know about thread pool isolation and circuit breakers, or any of that stuff. That all happened over a period of years. And so it was a very, very painful transition until probably six years ago, seven years ago, when things started. It was around 2015, 2016, where we, I think we started to really get our act together. And it was right around the time when I left, it was, it was 2016. But it really felt like things got stable at that point. And it was a it was pretty painful up until that point. <laughs> S- similar to your experience with the personal computer and the excitement you got from uh, creating software you could run on your computer and hand to a friend that they could run on their computer. I'm curious, I, I had a feeling like this with using Amazon Web Services for the first time and creating a, a virtual uh, virtual machine or provisioning one. And it's so trippy being able to provision resources with a click or provision resources mm-hmm. programmatically. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are about like what what will get people super excited about their first software engineering experience going forward? Do you think it's uh, do, you mentioned IDEs earlier and the the positive feedback loop that people have from seeing the code they write actually do stuff? But um, do you, what do you what do you see as being the most interesting, intriguing, inspirational kind of an area around software engineering in the next? I don't know, 10 years, 20 years? You know, I, I, it's funny. I, I was at GitHub for about a year. Um, and we, at the time, we were talking about a vision that I think they're still executing on um, there of seamlessly integrating services. So and not having installed IDEs, web-based IDEs that integrate directly with, for example, the production environment. We were talking about concepts like, hey, if I wanted to go add some instrumentation, into a particular application and I have that up on my screen. This is one of the scenarios we were talking about. What if I could go and make that code change and watch it get pushed out into production immediately and say, I want to test this and do a, set up a canary and start taking some traffic and then immediately get a feedback loop so you're basically tailing the logs of whatever, whatever service you were going to push me out into. Um, we started talking about, in a, you know, around all of that, this um, idea of engineers as superheroes sort of as a meme but really thinking about like the Jarvis sort of concept, like having AI that is continuously engaging with you, that's monitoring the projects you're working on, that understands your dependencies, that can automatically tell you when, the, when, when a particular new version of a library is getting traction and hey, it's time for you to go integrate that library now because it's been vetted, it's been baked in production by other people and it's deemed working. Um, GitHub had the advantage of sitting on, you know, massive amounts of source code and so applying machine learning and things like semantic code analysis and all of that would enable the development experience to become this very seamless and much more abstract more sort of human understandable kind of experience so i still feel like they have that that vision is interesting i i don't know if github will execute on that or somebody else will but i think down the road writing software is going to be much more like tony stark talking to jarvis um, or interacting through chat or, or programming at a higher level of abstraction so that you can um, put pieces together, build blocks together that make sense to you as a human 
um, and assembling them in a way and building workflows and other types of things without having to really get down to all of the low-level code that needs to do that. Now, of course, you're going to get the nerds who are like, I like writing the low-level code, um, and I like deeply understanding how things work. But if you really think about new engineers coming along, what's exciting is the ability to immediately make an impact. What's exciting is I have an idea in my head, I have a set of requirements, and being able to rapidly put that into and make that a reality. Um, and so I think, you know, cloud services are the beginning of that because now data centers have been abstracted away. Um, I think getting to the point where your IDE is driving your entire environment and that's your console, that's your HUD, you know, essentially where you're interacting with these programs and having much more immediate feedback and having it take less effort. Um, I think that's where the industry and needs to go from a business perspective. I'm pretty sure most businesses would want that kind of sort of rapid uh, development, the ability to iterate and innovate and, and really, you know, keep moving up the stack so that more and more stuff becomes undifferentiated heavy lifting. And so I think that's where the industry ultimately needs to go um, or will end up going over the next 10 to 20 years. Do you, do you see that at all with the rise of uh, functions as a service or AWS Lambda, uh, where you can write uh, just what's intended to be very short running function invocation, where, mm -hmm. you, where you pay per function invocation rather than per hour of compute oh, time? Oh, of course. You've now abstracted away the server, right? So if we're talking about abstractions, you're abstracting away the server. Now you don't have to think about tuning GC and monitoring CPU utilization and all of those kinds of things. So again, that's just another example of moving up the stack and that's exactly in line with that. But I think it'll go even higher than that where doing a deployment will be a voice command. You know, you say, hey, I want a red-black deployment. I want to do a canary. I want to run it for this long. And, you know, please do this analysis. The heuristics will already have been figured out in terms of how you determine if the new service is better or worse than another. So you won't have to be, like, configuring and, and doing things at the low level. That even, even configuration, I think, will get more and more abstract, where you basically are just going to work with building blocks that are conceptual, that are human understandable, and then use that those constructs to go build applications or get work done so yeah serverless is a great step along the way yeah we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on it uh for folks in our audience that might want to get a hold of you do you have a recommended way to reach you like twitter or linkedin or i don't know if you use those <laughs> sure sure i i'm i'm on linkedin LinkedIn, you can reach me there. Uh, my handle is Zentek, Z-E-N-T-E-K. Uh, I am also on Twitter. Use a similar handle there, Zen, at ZenTechnologist. Um, reach out to me on either one of those, those, uh, those places. And I have people reaching out all the time, so happy to connect. Totally. We'll include links in the show notes for the curious folks amongst us. And uh, I want to say thanks again for coming on, Josh. This has been a really entertaining educational session. Great. I had a, a lot of fun too. Happy to do this again anytime. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.